0: defection and desertion are contemptible because they involve disloyalty and betrayal few things are more tragic or disappointing than a christian who deserts the purity of the gospel for a false form of christianity that thinks it can improve on the finished work of christ yet that's what many believers in the galatian churches had done or were in danger of doing because of the judaizers Throughout church history, there have always been believers that started out well and came to Christ and then were pulled away from the truths of the gospel that they had first believed and followed. People throughout all of history have believed the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but then they fall prey to some system of legalism and works righteousness that promises more but always produces less. Some fall into formalism, substituting external ceremonies and rites for the internal reality of growth with God. Others fall into legalistic systems of do's and don'ts, proudly hoping to improve their standing before God by doing or not doing certain things. And still others look for a second blessing, a spiritual secret to unlock some higher plane of spirituality, People that just think, maybe God just didn't give me quite enough when I was saved, and I need to know him in this secret way um, to, to get more of God. Paul had been used to give this gospel of grace to the Galatians, first to bring them to the truth that salvation is received by faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross, plus nothing, plus nothing else. Now they were drifting away from this way of pure grace and accepting this inferior and weak substitute of following rituals and ceremonies to improve their relationship with god and even even in the old testament even in the old covenant these rituals and ceremonies had no power to save the defecting believers had not lost their salvation i think this is important to point out these were true believers and they had not lost their salvation Um, They still had right standing before God positionally, but they had lost the joy and the freedom that their salvation had given and had traded it for this uncertainty and this bondage to a self imposed legalistic way of living. Um, They were still in Christ, but they weren't practically living out. They weren't walking in a straightforward way um, that Melanie talked about a couple weeks ago. They weren't walking in line with the gospel. And they had traded the fullness of life in Christ that they had enjoyed previously for a form of religion that had no power or joy because they allowed themselves to be deceived. You know, we might think, well, what's the big deal? They're still in Christ. But the problem is there's a lot of unbelievers watching and they are going to be deceived by this false form of Christianity. And that's why Paul is fired up, because this is really a matter of heaven and hell. Paul's like, if you project this false system, this false gospel, this is not going to bring people to Christ. This is, this is false. And so they're not only in danger of, you know, robbing themselves of the blessing of, of being, you know, knowing who they are in Christ, but they're, ro- they're in danger of robbing their world of the knowledge of really the only way of salvation, and this is nothing new. Satan never ceases his effort to destroy God's way of salvation. And because God's way is by grace, Satan's is always the opposite. The way of man's own effort and work. You know, this goes all the way back to the time of Cain and Abel. Cain offered a sacrifice based on his own works instead of an animal sacrifice. And it—it, it, I mean, that's our first example of works righteousness in the Bible. Um, unbelieving man has tried forever, to make himself right with God through his own goodness and and merit. Well, Paul, we talked about it in our group, Paul is just shocked. He just cannot even get his head around. Like, I would not want to be in that same room with Paul. Like, the more I read this, the more scared of Paul I got. He is just, like, shocked that they have known and received the true gospel and now they're being led astray to do all this external, extra stuff. Um, he just, he can't understand. And neither can I, the more I studied. They, they traded grace for law. And think going backwards. Like I had it on a page, law and grace, but they're going backwards. Grace to law, faith to works, the cross, Calvary for ceremony, They had traded freedom for bondage. And we might think, they don't really seem like they're that much in bondage. I mean, they seem fine to us. Well, apparently they're not, because that's why Paul wrote this letter. Um, And really, these two chapters, Galatians 3 and 4, are the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatians over and over and over again. He is going to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So justification, that's a word that we don't need to be afraid of. It's a legal term, and it describes a judge declaring an accused person not guilty and therefore innocent before the law. Throughout Scripture, it refers to God's declaring us sinners not guilty and fully righteous before him. By this great exchange, all of our sin goes on Christ, and all of Christ's righteousness comes to us. And I did say all because I mean all, all of our sin in exchange for all of his righteousness, which just doesn't seem fair, does it? So Paul is going to use a few ways to show these Galatian believers that justification is by faith alone. The first thing he talks about in these first few verses is the believer's experience. Now, I want us to be careful because we can certainly focus too much on experience and, and be way over here in Wonko land. We don't want to do that. But Paul is going to very carefully remind them of their experience with Christ and their experience with the Spirit and their experience with God. He's going to use the Trinity and how each person of the Trinity has, was directly involved in their salvation and that they experienced it. It was a real thing. So in verse 1, he so kindly says, Oh foolish Galatians. Now, if somebody wrote you a letter and that's how they began it, "Foolish Amanda," I would I would be paying attention. Somebody thinks I'm foolish? What have I done? He is not mincing words and it's it's on purpose. You know, this is a combination of anger and love. He loves these believers and he cares that they are being led astray. He he is going to the mat, Lauren. He's going to the mat for him. That's an inside joke, you know, from the Godfather. Anyway, okay. Anyway, Paul says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, So we're going to talk about the word foolish and the word bewitched. Now, Paul is not, like when you read this, you might think, gosh, you're kind of a jerk, Paul. Paul is not being rude to them. He's not condescending to them. The word foolish that he uses here, it doesn't mean mental deficiency. Like, like you, you're not all there. What it means is mental laziness. He's saying you were careless. He's not insulting their intelligence, but rather their lack of obedience. Um, these believers in Galatia they weren't stupid. They simply failed to use their spiritual intelligence when faced with the superficial false gospel of the Judaizers. Um, they they had intelligence. They just weren't using it. Basically as I say to my kids sometimes, you're not using your head. They weren't using their heads. They had fallen into legalism because they'd stopped believing and applying the basic, basic truths of the gospel that Paul had taught them, that men come to salvation, and not just come to salvation, but they live out salvation only by faith in the person and power of Christ. So they were following whims and impulses rather than God's revealed truth. They were going by feelings rather than using their minds and you might be like how do you know that how do you know this was feeling oriented well i didn't know that until i started researching the word bewitched he says oh foolish galatians who has bewitched you because the word bewitched here the greek word means to charm or fascinate in a misleading way as by flattery false promises it can mean occultic power But it clearly, the way it's used here, suggests the use of feeling over fact and emotion over clear understanding of truth. So, the Galatians, they weren't victims of some magical spell. They were just misled by teachings that they should have recognized very clearly as false. They were willing. They were willing victims who gave in to the flesh-pleasing works, righteousness of the Judaizers. And why is it flesh-pleasing? because man it feels good to say we earned something it feels good to do something and say i did that i you owe me you owe me because i did that it it pleases our flesh and that's what that's what they were giving into um they had been convinced that faith wasn't enough and they needed to add on to their faith with uh, ceremonies and rituals from the old covenant so the the so he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified." So they should have understood this false gospel based on their experience with number one with Christ. Um, Paul says that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Well, what does that mean? No, he wasn't. Like not they. That happened way before this church, these churches. But what it means is the the term for um, the word for publicly portrayed. It, it's a word that means like when you put something in a public marketplace or a public location so that everyone can see it, like a big announcement, like we have out there, you know, something that's very big and obvious where everyone will see it. Well, Paul had done that for these Galatian believers. Paul was the one that publicly paraded Christ around as crucified um, for their sins, and so. You know, if you think about that, Paul surely was a dynamic preacher. Probably one of, probably the best, right? I mean, come on, this is Paul. I think that, I mean, sometimes do you ever just stop and think, what would it have been like in the shoes of these people? Like, Paul wasn't there for the crucifixion, but he has had an intimate encounter with Christ. And it went over a period of a few years, remember? We learned in Galatians 1 that he went away for a few years. He wasn't with any of the other churches. Like, that's some intense discipleship with Jesus himself. And, you know, we won't know this side of heaven, like the extent of what happened during that time. But, you know, you can just imagine when Paul is preaching to these believers, like, they're hearing the pounding of the nails. And they are seeing the blood and the the crown of thorns. I mean, like... I just imagine that Paul is that preacher that you're like knowing you're feeling what he's talking about. So the point being, Paul's like, you very clearly got the gospel of Christ. You, it was given to you. And so it's not like you can be like, hello, we didn't really know you. It was very clearly given to you. And then the word crucified, um, but it before your eyes that jesus christ was publicly portrayed as crucified so this is an interesting we know what crucified means but we may not know this is why i like the greek i'm not a greek like smarty but like anybody has resources to look up words and they're just their language is so much more fascinating than our boring language but the word used here for crucified, it's a perfect passive participle. And what it mean, what that means is that the cross was something that happened. It was a point in history that happened, but it has continuing results. So no, like the cross is still working. No ritual, ceremony, regulation, or anything devised by man can pick up where the cross leaves off. Because the cross never leaves off. Like that's really good news for us, you guys. The cross is the continuing, eternal payment for our sin. And every sinner who puts his trust in the cross is forever and continually being forgiven. A believer can no more stay saved by works than they could have been saved by works in the first place. And the cross, it just keeps moving powerfully through history, and it's going to stand forever as living proof that we cannot redeem ourselves. And Paul's saying... You got this message. How can you How can you be leaving this? Um, so next, in verses 2 through 4, Paul talks about their experience with the Holy Spirit. Um, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? There's that kind word again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So, Paul's going, did you have to fulfill further requirements? Did you go through some special ceremony? Or did you receive the Spirit when you received Christ as Lord and Savior? The answer is obvious. I mean, he asked a ton of rhetorical questions that they should be being like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, you're right. You're right. They're very clear. The answer is very clear that they received Christ and the Spirit at the same time. Um, He's being kind of tricky here. Because he's actually using the Galatians' salvation to refute the Judaizers. He's saying, they say that you need this, but your own experience refutes that. Like, you've already experienced it. All you have to do is use your experience to tell them that they're wrong. That their their false teaching of keeping the law is necessary for salvation. But, and don't forget, these are Gentiles. They weren't keeping the law. So, I mean, Paul's going why would you go to that? You've already been given the clear gospel. He keeps reiterating it, so I do too. But <laughs> in verse four, Paul says, did you suffer so many things in vain? And that that word suffer really kind of means more, did you experience? So he's saying, did you experience so many things in vain? Did you learn nothing at all from coming to Christ? Can you, can you not think things through and see that the claims of the Judaizers cannot possibly square up with the gospel you've been taught and you've experienced it for yourselves? <clears throat> and then the third appeal to experience is with God the Father. In verse 5, um, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So that word provides, does he provide, and does he who provides you? It means, this is pretty cool, to supply abundantly and with great generosity. So in God's generosity, which is over and abundant, God provides them with the spirit and he works miracles among them. And miracles, basically, in in this context, it's talking about the inherent power we have. We have the power of God inside us. So really Paul's using the full trinity here. He's saying, if a person has received eternal salvation through trust in the crucified Christ and received the fullness of the spirit, the same moment he believed and has the father's spirit given power working through him, how could he hope to enhance that out of his own human resources by some effort? Like, even as I'm reading it, I'm like, that just doesn't even like he must have been thinking like that does not compute like how you have experienced the full trinity in salvation how do you think that you can add to this how do you think this was lacking by listening to the false gospel of the Judaizers the Galatians were denying their own experience of salvation they they have to understand that this is a step back like this is not progress this is regression, and it's in a really bad way because it's affecting unbelievers that are going to see, that are going to go, oh, we have to do all this stuff. So, in the next section, verses six through fourteen. Let's see what time I, I don't have the time here. Okay, um, Paul is going to talk about justify, justification by faith, and he's going to prove it by scripture. There's a positive proof and a negative proof. We looked up a bunch of these um, verses just now in our groups, but in verses six through nine, he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Um, Paul gives positive proof from the Old Testament in verses 6 through 9 that the Judaizers surely used Abraham as proof that circumcision was necessary to please God and be acceptable God, because God had called Abraham out of his own land. He had given him these promises, and then God said, Hey, I want you to mark yourself separate by mm-hmm. circumcision. Um, I didn't even read further the, the part of circumcision. We'll get there. Um, but I did have a quote about about circumcision not to be all weird but (laughs) do you ever wonder okay maybe it's just me are you ever like why that like why not shave your left arm hair or something like why that well I wondered that for a long time and it just seemed weird and really personal and private and I but I knew there had to be meaning and I mean this was a long time ago God led me to this quote and I found it again because it just makes so much sense to me The symbolism of circumcision had to do with the need to cut away sin and be cleansed. It was the male organ which most clearly demonstrated the depth of depravity because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. Thus, circumcision symbolized the need for a profoundly deep cleansing to reverse the effects of depravity. So, humans are sinful and we produce more sinful humans. That's basically what this quote is saying. And 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 not just a little sinful. I mean, if you have a toddler, you know, it's not just a little sinful. It's like really depraved. Um, and so the, the point of circumcision was that God was wanting them to have this constant reminder, you are depraved sinners and you, you're perpetuating sinfulness and you need cleansing, right? You can't change this yourself. The Judaizers put these two things together. And so they said, well, God called Abraham and then he commanded circumcision for his descendants. So they're like, isn't it obvious that if the rest of the world, Gentiles, what they're talking about, if they're to share in the promised blessings of Abraham, they must first take on the sign of looking like God's people the mark of God's people the Jews if all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham they'll have to become like Abraham and be circumcised and Paul is going no that doesn't really that doesn't really match up because in verse 6 he says don't you know Abraham was um justified Abraham Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and so he's like have you ignored this fact that Abraham was declared righteous before circumcision ever came along? Way before the command to do that. He, he was declared righteous because he believed God. So the Judaizers, just like we can read in the Gospels and see how Jesus addressed the Pharisees, They had really reversed the relationship of circumcision and salvation. Circumcision was just a mark. It was never the means of salvation. It's an external physical act, and it has no no spiritual power. It has no um, bearing on justification. But, you know, since the fall, mankind is proud, and we're always naturally inclined to trust in ourselves, including the ability to please God by our own character and effort. The Jews in Jesus' day put a lot of stock in being descendants of Abraham and being circumcised. By counting on this ceremonial, really nationalism, legalistic Jews imagined that they were spiritual as well as physical lineage of Abraham. Um, In John 8, I wanted to read this section real quick. In John 8, Jesus is addressing some Pharisees and he says let's see John 8:31 I'm not going to read all this but um it says Jesus said to the Jews if you abide in my word you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and they answered him we're offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone how is it that you say you'll become free well they were enslaved by Rome at this time I don't really understand why they thought they weren't enslaved but anyway Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Um, and they go further and they say, they basically say, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, if you're Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did, which was believing and believing in, in God. Um, but n- but now you seek to kill me, a man, just because I've told you the truth that I heard from God. Um, that's not, he says, that's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father. And later on, he says, you're doing your works of your father, the devil. He's basically saying, like, that's some harsh words. Um, he's saying, you are not of Abraham because you're trusting in works. And Abraham did not trust in works. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um the reason why I read that is because Paul is saying the same thing here he's saying Abraham is not primarily the father to the Jews he's first the spiritual father to everyone who believes in God. He is considered the the father of the nation of the Jews, but that's his secondary that's his secondary identity um, Paul's making the same point to the believing Jews here in Galatia that Jesus made to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem that Only genuine believers have any claim to a spiritual relationship to Abraham or to God. Jews with no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are not true sons of Abraham, whereas Gentiles who believe in him are. And this must have blown their minds. This must have just been such radical teaching for them. Um, in the next few verses, Paul gives a negative proof from the Old Testament. of He's basically saying, the verses we looked up in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Habakkuk, um, Paul shows that the curse for disobedience is universal. And as people fail to live by the works of the law, they don't find life in the law. They find a curse. The message of these three passages that Paul is pulling from is it's the same, that perfection allows for no exceptions and no failure of even the smallest sort to break the law in one place is to break it all. Um, But the Habakkuk quote, the positive hope that we have in Christ shows that the righteous live by faith and that this faith is now pointed toward the one who took the curse of the law through crucifixion. Now this had to be hard for them to hear. I'm almost done in first peter 2 24 it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed you were healed so this had to be so hard for a lot of jews including paul before he was converted to accept because the deuteronomy passage that we looked up um, talked about anyone hanging from a tree being cursed and they just could not wrap their minds around a cursed Messiah. I mean, they just, that's why Paul persecuted the churches. He said, that can't be the Messiah. He was cursed. Um, they just couldn't conceive of it. And 1 Corinthians 1, 23 tells us that the cross, it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they, they, they have this block. They can't accept it. But for those who trust in him, those words, um, uh, cur- cursed hang on. I, well, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Oh, those words for us, those might be two of the best words in Scripture. Because God sent his Son to bear the penalty for our sin. Every person who trusts in Christ, Christ has borne the curse. We're not under it. That's what Paul's saying. If you follow the law, you better make sure you follow all of it. And since you can't follow all of it, you're cursed. And that is. That's not great news, but guess what? It is because Christ took the curse fully and forever. He took the curse so that we're not cursed, we trust in Christ. So the end, the last few verses, Paul is comparing the law to Christ. And like, as I'm even talking, I'm like, there's no comparison. What's the problem here? Like, go back to Jesus. Um, But as, as we probably are saying, well, what's the purpose of the law? Paul anticipated that they'd have this question. And he says that there is a purpose. We actually had a good discussion about this in our group, that one purpose was to imprison God's people in in the reality of their total helplessness, their total inability, um, so that they would long for freedom. I mean, surely somebody in prison longs to get out of there. They would long for freedom, um, verses 22 and 23 says. And then the second purpose was like a guardian, like the law would prove to guide them in the ways of righteousness that God, that that would honor God, um, but both a prison and a guardian are only required for a short time. Paul wants the Galatians to understand that the requirements of the law that imprisoned all these generations in guilt, and 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 made them hope for Christ, like christ has come so faith in jesus doesn't eliminate the moral requirements of the law but it gives freedom to obey because it honors god instead of earning merit before god and it gives freedom from the condemnation of being cursed for not being able to obey the law the law is a mirror it is not a cleanser it was never intended to give life it was always intended to show the need for help rescue, the need for new life, the need for a savior. It was never intended to give righteousness. It was never intended to save. So the very end, the last few verses, verses 26 through 29, Paul talks about two, he mentions two important points here. One is oneness in Christ, and then the other is union with Christ. So Paul's whole motivation behind this letter is the dividing wall between the Jews and Gentiles is gone, right? It's why he writes Ephesians. It's like he's passionate to say there's no more division. Um, that, that that wall has been broken down. And in, the, in these verses, Paul shows that there are other divisions as well that are broken down, and they have no bearing on our standing before God. I mean, we could talk for two hours about all the social justice issues and the divisions that we create. And Paul is saying you know, there are, we're all the same. Like Melanie said last week before the cross, I mean, it's level ground and there should be no division among believers um, as, as far as, you know, he says, neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile. No, you, get, you, you know what I'm saying. Um, we should rejoice in this gospel that doesn't give spiritual preferences. Praise God, it doesn't. And we should conduct ourselves in a way that exhibits that to the world. And then the last thing is union with Christ. Um, This might be the best verse of the whole chapter. Um, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Y'all, we belong to Christ. We should just stop a minute and let that sink in, that we belong to Christ. You can't exaggerate the importance of this doctrine that Paul is teaching. I mean, he it's, it's what he's leading up to this whole chapter. It's the height. It's like this chapter, I felt like was like a mountain I was climbing and you get to this and it's like the height, it's the tip. You, you've got to understand Paul's saying to them, you have to understand what it means to be in Christ. So this is a shameless plug for the women's retreat coming up in a week and a half. Um, because we're going to talk about what it means to be in Christ. That's the whole subject and come, it'll be good. Um, Paul is saying here that they are children of Abraham if they are in Christ. They get all the blessings promised to Abraham, mainly the main promise of justification by faith. He'll go on in the next chapter to discuss more about what it means to be an heir of the promise given to Abraham. But for now, let's, let's lay in the plane. So I feel like there's two ditches. There's the ditch of legalism that Paul is certainly addressing. And then there's the ditch of licentiousness. And what that means is, I'm good. I am covered by grace. I can do whatever I want. He's going to forgive me. That's what you just spent 25 minutes talking about is that he's going to forgive me. And, you know, I was trying to think, how does this relate to us? Because I just, I, I was thinking about this particular group of ladies. I don't know all of you. But I thought, you know, probably not many of us are going to be like, yeah, I'm really trying to follow the, the rules to be good with God. I mean, how, how, does, this, how does this land with us? And Paul's going to talk about the ditch of licentiousness later. But for now, this ditch of legalism, where we have this innate urge to add to the finished work of Christ. So I was playing a game with myself. You might be a legalist if, so I started thinking of some stuff. You might be a legalist if you have a critical spirit, if you're judgmental, if you're not gracious, if you find comfort in rule following versus resting in Christ finished work. You might be a legalist if you really struggle with perfectionism and if your self-talk is, oh, I should have done this, I could have done this, I must do this, oh, I failed with my kids today, tomorrow I'm going to do this and this. Um, I'm going to end with a passage from John five. You know, we're not struggling with the same issues of legalism, obviously that the Galatians were, but there is in all of us a bent towards self-righteousness. There just is. There just, no matter how much we think we're dependent on the cross and we love the gospel, man, ask God to show you where you're, depending on, on yourself. And he will make it clear because he did to me this week and it was really ugly. In John five, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Oh, he's saying the scriptures, you're looking for life in them and life is in them. And that life is Christ. They point to Christ. And so I think, you know, Paul is saying to the Galatians, and I think the way it applies to us today is the scriptures give eternal life because they give us Christ. And that is where our hope is. You know, they missed it. How did they miss it? They were looking for the Messiah. And Jesus is like, I'm right here. Those are about me. And you're totally missing it. Um, I I just pray that we would not miss Christ and his word and that we would not miss, um, you know, what, what God has for us to learn in Galatians. Some of it seems not very relatable to us in our current culture, but it's God's word and God's word is, is, um, always valid. Okay. Let me pray.